This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Hello, my name is Chris Massa. I am Director of Music and Worship Arts at Church of the Ascension, and I am in charge of editing and posting the audio for the sermons podcast. On this particular Sunday, that is August 22nd, 2021, uh, we were experiencing quite a bit of technical challenges, particularly with the sound during the service, which impacted the quality of this recording. In other words, this recording um, does not sound great. I did just about everything I could to make it sound better, uh, but it still was not great. But I think the the message that Father Kevin shared is still uh, very good and very much worth hearing. So I hope you can stand the less than ideal audio quality and uh, are blessed by what you hear. Thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in humility. We ask that you would speak to us. We submit ourselves to you. We sit under your word. Help us by your spirit to understand it. Help us to be wise people. To be filled with your spirit to walk after you this day and all days. Praise you to Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And do another shout out, just like we shouted out Albert. I want to shout out the audiovisual tech crew. Uh, I know we're having some technical difficulties and they are handling it masterfully. Non anxious presence. So thanks so much, guys, for all of your hard work. We appreciate you. So I want to begin uh, a sermon this morning. I should always begin with a shout out. Maybe that'll be a new fun tradition. <laughs> uh, but uh, this morning I want to uh, ha- turn our attention to a painting. It's an insert in your bulletin. Uh, for some of them, we also had technical issues with a printer, uh, so it's an insert, not the cover of the bulletin. But if you could uh, turn to that, I want to begin by just reflecting on that a little bit together. It's a cheery painting. Um, you know, the cross is also not, not very cheery either, so it's like, you know, interesting, interesting iconography. So this uh, painting uh, was made in 1630 in the 17th century. It's called Vanitas Still Life, and it was painted by a Dutch artist by the name of Peter Claus. And right now it's housed in the Maritas Gallery in The Hague. My wife Susan and I got to see it when it was in New York City back in 2014, and the painting has stuck with me ever since. This painting is an example, a really good example, of what art historians call Vanitas paintings. They're paintings whose subject is on the fleetingness of life. And so we see some of the common symbols in our painting. We see a human skull, perhaps the most obvious thing that grabs your attention, which symbolizes death, human mortality. If you look in front of the skull, it's hard to make out, but there's a slight reflection. We see a glass, an overturned wine glass, which symbolizes the emptiness of worldly pleasure. And then, just below the skull, there's a quill and a stack of papers. And this symbolizes the limitations of human ambition. This painting is a memento mori, which is a Latin phrase that means remember you're going to die. And in addition to this painting being a, a, a work of great technical skill and even beauty, the painting functions as a kind of morality tool. 
The purpose of this painting, which uh, was very popular, this kind of painting is very popular in the 17th century, is to put front and center in all of our minds the reality that we're going to die. That death is coming for each and every one of us, and to allow this reality to shape how we live our lives. And the artist quite literally gives us the key for living well. If you look carefully in the center left foreground, you see that there's a key dangling over the left edge of the table. The key is attached to a bright blue ribbon, it's sort of the thing that pops from the painting. The key is held on the table by a pocket watch. This was a relatively new invention at the time. So the artist is saying the key to life well lived is how we use our time. And our focus this morning, we're just going to be looking at Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, but in this part of the passage, the Apostle Paul is saying something very similar to this painting. The key to living well is making the most of our time. And so with the time that we have this morning, I want to focus on three things together. The first thing I want to look at is a framework for how we ought to think about time that we get from this passage. Second, I want to look at the greatest threat to our time. And third, I want to touch on two practices that have been implemented into our lives will help us make the most of our time. So that's the plan. So first, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's framework for how to think about time. Well, in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, the Apostle Paul says in 5.15, Be careful how you live. Now, the Greek for this phrase is literally, be careful how you walk. The word uh, walk is translated either uh, walk or live. And I prefer um, maintaining the metaphor of walking. I think it helps get Paul's point across a bit better. You see, throughout the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, walking is a common metaphor we see for our life with God. And it's a great metaphor. Walking has a pace. Walking is slow and steady, it's not a sprint. Christians are to be tortoises and not hares. And walking has a goal. Uh, our faith, that means, is not just some decision that we've made in the past, but is always oriented towards a future destination in God. And Paul really likes this walking metaphor. He uses it no less than six times in chapters 4 and 5 of his letter to the Ephesians. He says, for instance, we are to walk in love. We are to walk in unity. We are to walk in light. And in our passage, we are to walk in wisdom. And walking in wisdom, I'll give you my definition of it. Walking in wisdom means mastering the art of living well. Mastering the art of living well. The wise person understands her context and can discern how she should respond in any given situation. Now to help us walk in wisdom, Paul in this passage is answering two implicit questions. Those questions are, when are we? What time is it? When are we? And how should we then live? Now to the first question, when are we? I think Paul gives a really surprising answer. At the end of verse 16, Paul writes that we are living in evil days. He says the days are evil. That sounds really scary, and I think it is. So what does he mean by that? What does he mean by saying that we live in evil days? Well, Paul hints at what he means at this, uh, by this earlier in the letter in Ephesians chapter 2. Here he says that we are living in a time where there are forces at work, 
He describes them as the world and the flesh and the devil. There are forces at work that desire nothing less than our distraction or our destruction. And as we'll see, there's not much of a difference between the two. So when Paul says the days are evil, he's providing our spiritual time coordinates. We inhabit a time when there are powerful forces at work that are working against any progress that we might make in our walk with Jesus Christ. That means the Christian walk, the Christian life, is less a walk in the park and more a walk through a mindful. This has serious implications for how we ought to live. Because the days are evil, Paul writes, look carefully at you, all. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most or making the best use of the time. Now Paul is not saying that we ought to live in fear, or that because the days are evil we ought to disengage from the world. What Paul is saying is that we need to seize every opportunity that the Lord provides us to be a signpost for the kingdom of God. He's saying, because the days are evil, don't waste your time. And St. Paul doesn't give us a list of rules for just how to do this. Instead, what he gives us is a pattern and an example. So we'll look at first the pattern and then the example that he provides for us. So the pattern begins to emerge and begins to jump off the page when you see that our passage is structured around three contrasts, three contrasting statements. Three times Paul says, don't do this, do this instead. He says, do not be unwise, but be wise. Do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. Third and finally, do not get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. There's profound moral logic at play here. And we shouldn't be surprised that there's some profundity in the scriptures. You see, God created us, and he knows how we tick. He knows what we need. Our Heavenly Father knows that when his kids are hungry, it won't do to simply say, no candy for you. God has to provide his children something healthy and care instead. And the moral logic at play here is really simple. Say no to say yes. Say no to say yes. And so I want to do a little, wake us up a little bit, do a little congregational participation. Put your hands in the air. Thumbs, thumbs up. Everybody do thumbs up. Okay, now everyone do your thumbs down. Okay, wonderful, great. If you can do that, if you can do the thumbs up and the thumbs down, each at the right time, you're beginning to grasp the essence of Paul's moral law. Simple as that. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. Saying no or yes to the right thing at the right time. Saying no or yes to the right thing at the right time. It's very simple, but it's not very easy. So that's the pattern that Paul gives us in this passage. Now I'm going to talk a bit about the example that he provides. And it might seem odd at first, but it's actually quite brilliant for you reflect on it. The example is verse 18 in chapter 5. Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, why do you think Paul is using getting drunk as his example Why do you think he might be doing that? Well, on the surface, getting drunk is an obvious example of wasting time. The word we have for debauchery is perhaps better translated dissipation, which means to squander. Dissipation is an act of wasting by misuse. And so what Paul is saying is, if you want to waste your life, Get wasted all the time. <laughs> but I want to dig a little deeper into the example. 
And I think if you pay attention to what he's contrasting drunkenness with, namely the Spirit of God, we'll see that getting drunk is not just a good example of wasting time. You see, getting drunk can lead you to doing or saying things that you would have never done were you in your right mind. And so Paul contrasts getting drunk with wine and the Holy Spirit because these are two things that are external to us that when we put inside our bodies, when they become internal, have a profound impact on what we say and what we think, what we do, and how we live. So when Paul says, be filled by the Spirit, he's conjuring this image of a boat whose sails are filled with wind and driven forward. In other words, what you're filled with matters. Be filled with wine, and that will lead to ruin. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and that leads to all of the wonderful, spirit-filled, the qualities of spirit-filled community that we read about in verses 19 to 21. So let me summarize here what I think Paul is saying up to this point. This is what I think Paul is saying. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to make the most of your time? Well, if you do, be careful of the things you allow to influence your heart and your mind your body. Now I want you to think about this. If Paul were writing this letter, not to the first century Ephesians, but if he was writing this letter to us in the 21st century, what example do you think he might use instead of getting drunk? If he was writing this letter to us. Now I think alcohol would certainly apply, that still is very relevant, but I'll tell you what I think the Apostle Paul would say. Instead of, do not get drunk on wine, I think he would say, do not get hypnotized by your screens. Now, this, this leads us to the second point, what I think is the greatest threat to making the most of our time in our day and age, which is our screens, the screens that we surround ourselves with and fill our homes with. Our smartphones, our tablets, and our TVs. The black mirror that casts the hypnotic blue glow is the greatest threat to our time. And I want to be clear, I don't think I was clear enough about this in uh, the 9 a.m. service. I'm not a Luddite, I have iPhone 12, I use technology, I use screens. I'm not saying that screens are evil or bad in and of themselves. It's not the use of screens, it's the abuse of screens. Just like with wine, Paul wasn't a teetotaler, he in fact prescribed alcohol to Timothy. Uh, he wasn't against drinking wine, he was against drunkenness. And so what I'm uh, talking about here for the rest of the sermon is uh, a kind of drunkenness with our screens. Not the use of them, but the misuse and abuse of them. So just want to be clear about that. Um, as we move forward I, um, and talk more about screens, I'll, I'll resist commenting on uh, the alarming statistics of the impact of our screens, both on our mental health and on our social fabric. The data uh, on these things isn't really conclusive yet, and uh, we're in the middle of that experiment uh, for ourselves and for our children, so can't comment yet on those things. But what I can say with confidence is that screens are our greatest threat to making the most of our time because of their power for addiction and their power for manipulation. I'm convinced that the greatest external influence in our lives, the primary place of catechesis, the primary ways that our hearts are being formed and our minds are being formed and our moral imagination is being shaped is the media that we consume through our screens. And as Christians, we need to talk more about how we use this technology. 
we need to be careful how we walk. We need to pay attention to this uh, technology. Now, probably we don't need to convince you that our screens are addicting. I imagine many of us are addicted to our screens. Myself included, it's a constant struggle. I don't have to convince you, but here are some statistics just to put before you. And these statistics are just related to our screens. They don't say anything about the time we spend looking at our computers or watching TV. So on average, according to one study, we pick up our phone and look at it 58 times a day. So if you're awake for about 16 hours, that means you're on your phone every 15 minutes. The average American spends 3 hours and 15 minutes a day on their phone. The highest users spend upwards of 4.5 hours. That means we spend close to a quarter of our day looking down and in on ourselves, looking at the screen. And studies tell us that we don't even have to be looking at our phones, looking at our screens for them to distract us. Even if we have the phone in the same room with us, it distracts us, it clamors for our attention. And all of this is because we're addicted to our screens. And we need to know that the screens that we look at, that we spend a lot of money on, are not addictive by accident. A recent documentary called The Social Dilemma explains why screens are so addictive. In this documentary, they interview leaders or former leaders of big tech companies that kind of pull the curtain uh, out so that you can see behind and see just why our screens are so addictive. You see, all of these big tech companies, the YouTubes, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, uh, you know, Pinterest, all of them, all of them have a business model that depends on gluing eyes to screens. There's an unbelievable amount of energy and resources devoted to hacking all of our attention. You probably heard it said, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Or more specifically, your attention is the product. But the reality is even scarier than just the hacking of our attention. You see, the real source of money for these companies is not just our attention, it's the manipulation of our behavior. This is how Jaron Lanier describes it. He's a Silicon Valley scientist. He's one of the leaders that's interviewed in that documentary, A Social Dilemma. He wrote a book called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. This is how he describes how Big Tech makes its money. He says this, it's the gradual, slight, imperceptible change in your behavior and perception that is the product. That's the only thing for them to make money from. Changing what you do, how you think, and who you are. You see, the real danger of screens is that they're changing what we do, what we think, and who we are. We're not just addicted, we're being manipulated. And here's a real-world example to help you see how this plays itself out. Back in 2010, uh, Facebook conducted an experiment on its users. We didn't know that we were being experimented upon. I don't know if they still do this, but in 2010, this was the practice. And Facebook wanted to see if subliminal cues on Facebook pages could get Facebook users to show up uh, for the upcoming midterm elections. And what Facebook discovered was these subliminal cues, the experiment worked. They had record numbers of people show up to vote in midterm elections. Now, of course, voting is a very good thing, but this kind of power wielded is quite terrifying, especially when we don't know that it's being used upon us. 
You see, big tech can manipulate our behavior and our emotions and even real-world events, all without us ever knowing that they're influencing us. You see, the phone screen is like a pocket-sized black hole, and it wants to suck in all of our attention and all of our time into itself. And when it eventually lets us out and spits us back out, it's manipulated us. It's manipulated what we think and feel and do. Now, to their good credit, some in the tech industry are trying to help us wake up to the corrosive effects of screens. We see that in the social dilemma documentary. We also see it in various movements like the time well spent. But I don't know about you, I'm a bit suspicious of relying on big tech to solve the problems that they themselves have created. And this especially when we have the wisdom and the wealth of resources that we do in the Christian tradition. So that brings us to the third thing that I want to talk about. I want to touch ever so briefly on two practices, a daily practice, the daily office, and a weekly practice, the Sabbath, that can help us resist the pull of technology and so to live wisely. I like to think of these two practices as contemplative time maps. If we integrate these things, these daily and weekly rhythms, into our routines, they will help us to make the most of our time. Now, I know some of us already weave these practices into their lives. I think that's wonderful. Some of us already practice the daily office and the Sabbath, and I'm deeply encouraged by that. For those for whom that's true, consider this uh, just a helpful reminder for why Christians have done this for centuries. And for some of us, these practices will be new. And if that is you, I encourage you to try to weave these things into your routine. So first I want to talk about the daily office, the daily practice. This is an ancient pattern of devotion. It's time set apart in the morning and in the evening for silence, for prayer, and for reading the scriptures. And as Anglican Christians, we have a treasure in the Book of Common Prayer to guide us in the daily office with morning prayer and with evening prayer. You don't have to use the Book of Common Prayer for the daily office. Really, it can be any Bible reading plan or devotional guide. Whatever helps you to pay attention to God, that's what I encourage you to avail yourself of. Now, for many, sometimes myself included, the very first thing I look at in the morning is my screen, and the very last thing I look at before my head is the pillow is my screen. This is a pretty bad pattern. So perhaps the most strategic thing you can do to make the best use of your time is the daily office. And what I mean by that is in the morning, make a commitment to not look at a screen before you spend time looking at the scriptures and prayer. And in the evening, put your phone to sleep an hour before you do, and wrap up your day in God's presence, prayer. When the daily office is the first and the last thing that we do, we're letting God's presence our day. We're letting God's word set the agenda for us, not our inbox or an advertiser's model. And if we do this, if we do the daily office, it really can transform our days. It can transform our experience of God forever. So that's the daily practice, the daily office. The second thing I want to touch on is the weekly practice, the Sabbath. <clears throat> My favorite description of the Sabbath comes from a theologian named Marva Dawn, and she describes the Sabbath as a royal waste of time. I love that. It's a day set apart, a day of rest, a day devoted not to production, but 
to God. And the simplest way to understand the Sabbath is a rhythm of ceasing and feasting. Saying no to say yes. We say no to work so we can say yes to rest. We say no to the pull of technology so we can say yes to restorative sources of relationship and joy. So this morning, what I'm challenging us to do is a weekly tech Sabbath. And here's what I mean by that. This is what I'm encouraging us to do. One day a week, put your phones away. Shut your computer. Don't watch TV. One day a week, unplug. Say no to the screen for a whole day. I know that it sounds very hard because it is very hard. But over time, I promise, it not only gets easier, it gets far more enjoyable. And of course, it's not enough just to say no to our screens. We need to say yes to something better. Sabbath is ceasing and feasting. We say no to the screen that fosters our anxiety and our anger and our fear and our insecurity and our envy. We embrace the things that actually restore our humanity. We get outside. We get into the garden. We exercise. We spend time with the people that we love. So instead of doom scrolling, we can look for pleasure. Instead of online shopping, write a letter to somebody that you haven't spoken to for a while. Spend time with actual people, actual other bodies. Get off Facebook, get off Instagram, get off Twitter. Go for a walk with a friend. Play with your kids. Do something to serve somebody in the community. Now, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more that I would like to say about these practices that we simply don't have time for. But I can tell you from experience, uh, and much of this, this is a battle for me. I go in and out of being uh, addicted to my phone. Uh, it kind of comes and goes in the waves. Uh, but I do know that when I'm practicing these daily rhythms and these weekly rhythms, the spell of the screen is snapped. Uh, and when we do these, the spell of the screen will be snapped, and we'll come to love our screens less. We'll come to love God and our neighbors more. And if you want to dig deeper, if you're feeling uh, a conviction of the Holy Spirit or your uh, curiosity is, is piqued about how just to do this, the, place, the best place I would recommend you going is a book by Andy Crouch called The Tech Wise Family. It's a really accessible book, really short. Um, I would go there first. That will give you some helpful tools and rhythms. And talk about it in your community groups with your uh, other spiritual friendships in your families. That's a wonderful resource. I commend it to you highly. Now, I want to close with a poem. One of my favorite things to do on the Sabbath, Susan and I will often do this, is uh, read poetry. Because I found poetry to be one of the greatest antidotes to the flurry of Twitter hot takes and the relentless pace of the 24-7 news cycle. Good poetry is a slow and a quiet and a radical challenge to the harmful habits reinforced by our screens. And the poem that I want to read is one of my favorite poems, and it ties together so many of the themes that we've been exploring. This poem by Mary Oliver invites us to think about how we spend our time, which is how we spend our lives. And the poem is printed in your bulletin. It's on the opposite of page one if you want to follow along or reflect on it uh, later today or the week ahead. It's called The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. <laughs> Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. 
the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die that fast and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's pray. Father, we want to honor you and glorify you with our lives. As Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that we are going to die. I pray that that would shape how it is that we live. That you would fill us with your spirit, that we might make the best use of the time. For your glory and the good of the world, we pray.